morning, especially that new song, The Blood of Jesus Speaks for Me. It's been a song that is that I've recently learned uh, about a month or two. I've been listening to it, and it just ministers to my heart every single time. I just love the fact that the lyrics are so rich in theology and just really uh, reminds us all that Jesus has done for us and to us through the blood that he shed. Uh, thank you, everybody, uh, for cards and birthday wishes and all of that over this past few days and even yesterday, many of you surprised me with with a party and it always puts me in an awkward position because I don't ever like to be in the limelight. The only time I like to be in front of people and be the focus of attention is when I'm preaching and the reason I don't mind it is because your focus shouldn't be on me, it should be on the word and uh, I'm just a vocal mouthpiece and so uh, I'll hide behind the cross and hide behind the word but uh, thank you for, for that, for your love, for your uh, just your generosity and, and just affection um, on a very monumental day in my life. Yesterday I left my 30s and I've entered into my 40s. Some of you say it's the best ever. Um, one of the cards I got was this, this image of the way you viewed 40 as a kid is not the way I view 40 now, but the way you viewed 40 as a kid was like this old broken down man with a big gray beard and on a cane and walker and just kind of hobbling around and thankfully that's not true at 40 otherwise we'd all be in a pickle or many of us would be in a pickle today but uh, uh, I did leave my 30s yesterday and was holding on to the very last minute before I crossed the threshold into the 40s but uh, you know this spring as this day drew closer maybe I'm over dramatizing this I don't know but it might not have been this way for you but for me moving to 30 mentally was a big deal, but 40 has been a bigger deal for me. And maybe because when I turned 30, I all of a sudden lost leanness and hair and hair color. It's like immediately it switched in my life. So I'm just thinking the last several months for the worst, you know, what's going to happen since that's the way it was when I turned 30. Uh, But more than that, I've just been thinking about how at least, more than likely, at least half of my life is past, right? If I live to be 80, I'll live past the national average and so half of my life has already been spent. Now I've only got the backside of life to live. And so there really is a good chance that I have more days behind me than I have in front of me. And so uh, thinking about that, it's, very, um, it's amazing to me how fast 40 has passed. And, and as I've gotten older, you, uh, I'm sure, realize this as well. As you get older, days go quicker. Years pass quicker. It used to be when I was a kid, just like you, uh, Christmas would come and go, and all of a sudden it felt like time had ceased to move because you're just wanting Christmas to come back, and it just was a snail pace. Now I feel like Christmas comes, and all of a sudden the next day is Christmas again. It just passes so quickly, something my children don't understand, but they will in 30 or so years. Uh, And so as I've been thinking through this, it's been sobering to me. It's caused me to reflect upon my life. It's caused me to ask lots of questions, which is a healthy thing. Uh, Carrie asked me the other day if I was going through a midlife crisis. And I said, no, I don't think I'm going through a midlife crisis. But uh, in reality, I might be going through a midlife crisis. Uh, in a good way, hopefully. I don't think this midlife crisis means that I'm going to all of a sudden start unbuttoning my shirt to about right here and wear a big gold chain. I don't think it means I'm going to sell my truck for a, a convertible Miata. Um, I don't think it means, Lord, hopefully willing, and I, I know he's willing, but by the grace of God, I don't believe it means that I'm leaving my wife for a younger one. Um, so don't worry about that. Um, there's just really simply a, a new reality that I'm now on the backside of life, and so I'm thinking through how the latter years can be better, more intentional than the earlier years, 
And so I'm asking questions along those lines because I want the latter years of my life, hopefully you're the same way, I want the latter years of my life to count. Not to say that the first 40 didn't count, but now that you know, I'm on the home stretch, it's downhill from here, I want the latter part of my life to make the greatest impact as possible. I know that sounds morbid, but it's just where I'm at. You know, I've, this is what, um, uh, yeah, hopefully it will be the greatest. Um, I just drew a blank on his name, but a great preacher from the 20th century used to say this, one life will soon be passed, only what's done for Christ will last. See, I want my years, no matter how, they, how many they are, Hopefully there's 60 more years out there for me. I live to be 100 and, and, and get to watch grandchildren and great-grandchildren and maybe great-great-grandchildren come. But whatever, if it's one year or 60 years left, I want those years to count for something for the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I know you're the same way. And so just been thinking through this and asking questions. And, and we all ask questions of life. I mean, think about it. We all ask these questions. Where did I come from? Where, where did I come from? What was my origin? What's the genesis of my life? Why am I here? What difference am I making in this life that I have that I don't fully understand why I'm here or where I come from? And so what is the purpose and, and how can I make this purposeful life or a, a life that I'm struggling to find purpose? How can I make it count for something? One morning last week, I, I saw a young college student studying a, a textbook. And this was the title of the textbook, Evolution. Making sense of life. We have a, a complete uh, intellectual discipline that's been created for the sole purpose of answering the great questions of life. We call it philosophy. And, and so here in this textbook, it's trying to join science with philosophy and, and try to make sense of life. Unfortunately, Charles Darwin, who came up with this evolutionary hypothesis, he, what he does is he generates more questions than the questions he answers. And so I just looked at the title of that book, and, and I had a simple statement in my heart. I didn't say it to the kid. I wanted to, but I didn't say it to the kid. I just had a, a simple statement. I've got a better source for you. It's called, In the Beginning, God. It's called Genesis 1 and 2. It's called the Word of God, the Bible, and it speaks to us. You see, God has spoken. Where would we be today if God had not spoken? Where would we be today if God had been silent? It's hard to imagine. Such a universal condition. It's, it's difficult for us to conceive of such darkness where even a glimmer of hope does not exist. To be conscious of a longing that cannot find relief. To be aware of an incompleteness for which there is no remedy. You see, in such a place we would ask no questions because there would be no answers. But from the very opening pages of creation... To the concluding promise of Christ's return, the Bible and the Christian faith conclude that God has indeed spoken and God continues to speak today. He alone is complete and undiminished. He alone is total beauty and at the same time terror. He alone determines reality and who can contradict him. You see, when Jesus stood before Pilate, Jesus said these words in John 18. He says, for, the pur for this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Jesus, God the Son, God the Father, and God the Spirit have spoken. And listen to this statement. Watch this statement on the screen. The veracity of God's word is the center around which life 
arranges itself. You see, our life is built on the fact, the truth, the, the principle, the idea that God has indeed spoken. And if God has not spoken, we would not even exist. And if God has not spoken, we would be in a mess if we were to exist. Everything in our life revolves and arranges itself around the veracity of God's word. And so with that said, I want you to take your Bible, open with me to Nehemiah chapter 8. We're moving along in our study verse by verse through the book of Nehemiah. And this morning we're going to read the entire chapter. And what I'm going to do is come back and unpack the first eight verses. Then next Sunday we'll pick up and, and, and go into part two. And the Sunday after that, uh, I should say in a few Sundays on Father's Day, I will come back and unpack the third section. So we're going to look at Nehemiah 8 in three different sections, much like we did in chapter 6 and 7. Nehemiah chapter 8, beginning in verse 1. The Bible says, And all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. And they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women and all who could understand what they heard, on the first day of the seventh month. And he read from it facing the square before the water gate from early morning until midday in the presence of the men and the women and those who could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. And Ezra the scribe stood on a wooden platform that they had made for the purpose. And beside him stood Mattathiah, Shema, Aniah, Uriah, Hilkiah, Maaseah, and on his, right, on his right hand, or on his right hand, and Padiah, Mishael, Machijah, Hesham. This is the one that always trips me up. Hashbadadah, yeah, that one. Hashi, hash browns. I practiced that this morning. I've been practicing all week and, and messed it up. That's the one that trips me up with the double D. Zechariah and Meshulam were on his left. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people. And as he opened it, all the people stood. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands. And they bowed their heads and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Also Jeshua, Bani, Sherebiah, Jamin, Akib, Shibathai, Hodiah, Maaseah, Kalita, Azariah, Jezebel, Hanan, Peliah, and the Levites helped the people to understand the law while the people remained in their places. They read from the book, from the law of God, clearly, and they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. And Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra the priest and scribe, and the Levites, who taught the people, said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. And then he said to them, Go your way, eat the fat, and drink sweet wine, and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready. For this day is holy to our Lord. Do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites calmed all the people, saying, Be quiet. For this day is holy. Do not be grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and drink and to send portions and to make great rejoicing because they had understood the words that were declared to them. On the second day, the heads of fathers' houses of all the people with the priests and the Levites came together to Ezra the scribe in order to study the words of the law. And they found it, found it written in the law that the Lord had commanded Moses that the people of Israel should dwell in booths during the feast of the seventh month and that they should proclaim it and publish it in all their towns and in Jerusalem. Go out to the hills and bring branches of olive, wild olive, myrtle, palm, and other leafy trees to make booths, and it is written, as it is written. So the people went out and brought them and made booths for themselves, each one, each on his roof, and in their courts, and in their 
uh, and in the courts of the house of God, and in the square of the water gate, and in the square of the gate of Ephraim. And all the assembly of those who had returned from the captivity made booths and lived in those booths. From the days of Jeshua the son of Nun to that day, the people of Israel had not done so. And there was very great rejoicing. And day by day, from the first day to the last, he read from the book of the law of God. They kept the feast seven days. And on the eighth day, there was a solemn assembly according to the rule. As we've seen so far, working through the first seven chapters of this book, we've seen Nehemiah's ambition that it was not simply to reconstruct the walls of Jerusalem, but more importantly, it was to revitalize a spiritual community. He came to build walls, yes, he came to bring security to the people of God in the city of God, but his ultimate purpose was the same as that of Ezra, and that is to revitalize, to develop, to renew a spiritual community set apart for God. And so he wasn't asking to, or he wasn't seeking to resurrect just a religious community. He wasn't coming back just to restore temple worship and to go through religious motions. He wasn't seeking to just simply build a religious people. He desired to see his countrymen experience a spiritual renewal personally in their lives. And so Nehemiah soon began, and as he started this process, after the conclusion of the walls, he soon began to realize that the reforming of a community was going to be a more exact, exacting task than restoring the walls. He did understand that the only way for them to experience a spiritual renewal was for them to return to God's Word. Here's a statement. Spiritual renewal and vitality come through God's word, which forms the believer. You see, we could go through all sorts of religious activity. We could perform and and put on ceremonies and, and religious acts and do all kinds of stuff religiously, and it never changed our hearts. When we come before the Word of God and we allow the Word of God to wash our, over our souls and over our spirits and, and bring cleansing to our lives, what happens is the Word of God begins to refresh us and renew us and bring out all the impurities in our life as it brings to light the sinfulness that we have so that we can confess and forsake it and walk in forgiveness. And so as soon as building the work came to an end here in Nehemiah's uh, tenure, an unusual event took place. And it was an event that was going to prove dramatically influential in the spiritual life of God's people. So what's taking place? Well, we've read about it. See, the work was finished during the late summer month of Elul. Chapter 6, verse 15. The very next month is the month Tishri, and it marked the beginning of a new year. And the first day of this seventh month was a public holiday known as the Feast of Trumpets. And so only a few days after the completion of the wall, hundreds of men and women and children gathered into Jerusalem for a New Year celebration in which God's written word played a very central part. This outdoor public meeting was devoted entirely to hearing the word of God and hearing the word of God interpreted. They heard Ezra and the Levites read it and interpret it. Some of the leaders came back the next day and they again in smaller groups studied the word of God. Ezra and Nehemiah's work here to reestablish faithfulness and holiness among the Jews cultivated a genuine desire for the Word of God that opened the door for spiritual renewal. So I want us to examine this desire which led to their spiritual renewal. And we first 
we see that, 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 that this involves three things. And we're going to talk about these three things over this Sunday, next Sunday, and then on Father's Day. But the first thing I want us to see here this morning is that spiritual renewal values God's Word. It involves valuing God's Word. Valuing God's Word. You see, sometimes I think when we read the Bible, we may have this tendency to, to just ask the question, how in the world does this apply to my life today, the 21st century? I mean, this is written uh, centuries ago, eons ago in our minds. It's kind of like that idea of, of the birthday card that I received. We, just, we got a wrong perspective about it. We think it's ancient history. How does it apply today in modern history? Well, here we read the distinctive characteristics of this meeting for biblical exposition are strikingly relevant in our first 21st century world. You see, our American, our secular culture that we live in has been has become increasingly indifferent to the Bible. I uh, came across some research this week. Last year in 2017, Lifeway Research surveyed 1,000 Americans about their views of the Bible, and listen to what they found. They found that while many have a positive view of the Bible, most, that is 53% of those surveyed in this survey, have read little to none of the Bible. And so 47% of the people would say, uh, we, we find it positive, we would say it's good, we would say it's, it's an important thing, but 53% of those, so 530 people would say, I've not read any of it, or I've read very little of it. They also re, the study also revealed that 10% have never read any part of the Bible. Think about that, 10%, 100 people surveyed in this research project said, I've never read anything from the Bible. That's unheard of in, among us sitting here today. All of us, I would say, have read some of the Bible. 13% of those surveyed said that they've only read a few sentences of the Bible. The research went on to, to conclude that, that men were more likely to skip Bible reading than women, and so 39% of the men said that they were much more likely to skip the Bible. They, they looked at it and said, it's not important to me. Versus 31% of the women would say, it's not important for me to read the Bible devotionally in my life. I think, as, you know, I see those stats, I would think that's actually kind of high just from my experience of, uh, of just pastoring a church. And so they also conclude in this research that a number of reasons, a number of reasons that keep Americans from reading the Bible. Uh, some of the people said, 27% said that they don't prioritize reading the Bible. 15% said they just simply don't have time to read the Bible. 13% said that, they don't, that, they, that they've read it enough. That's the type of person that says, you know what? I've read it. I might have read it once all the way through. Or I've read, uh, I grew up in church and I've read some pieces of it. So I've been there, done that. I've had enough. I don't need it anymore. I don't know about you, but the more I read the Bible, the more I need to read the Bible. The, the more it speaks into the deep recesses of my heart. Uh, 9% said they simply don't read books, and so they just kind of lumped it in with everything else. Uh, that's probably the men, by the way. Most men don't read. 9% also said that they, didn't, they don't feel like the Bible relates to them, and so it was not important to read it because it doesn't relate. 6% simply said, I don't have a copy of the Bible. And then 10% said they don't read the Bible, and it's not important to them because they disagree with the fundamental teachings of the Bible. And so this study reveals that we don't value God's Word in America today. A thousand people in a survey is a pretty significant number of people. And so it's telling us there, 53% of the people said they, they don't read the Bible. 
And so what hap- what's happening in America today is we are growing generations uh, of people in our country today who have no understanding of Scripture. They're biblically illiterate, and they don't even understand why we would want to read the Bible. And, and, and you look at that, you say, well, this research, it's a thousand Americans, as though surely it doesn't apply to the church. I would say it does apply to the church. See, the reason that the people in America no longer value the Word of God is that the people in the church in America no longer value the Word of God. We don't value the Word of God like we ought to. We don't prioritize the Word of God. We don't lift high the Word of God. We don't align our lives under the Word of God. Why? Because we no longer value the Word of God in our lives, in our churches, and thus in our nation. So why should we ever expect to experience spiritual renewal if we never read our Bibles? The truth is you should never expect to experience spiritual renewal apart from the teaching and the reading of the Word of God. See, Paul said it this way in Romans ten seventeen: Faith comes from hearing and hearing through the Word of Christ. He told Timothy in 2 Timothy 3, all Scripture is God is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Christians who neglect the privilege and the discipline of daily Bible reading are severing their links with vital spiritual resources. If you don't read the Bible, you're cutting the lifeline off to your life. It's like trying to drive around in your vehicle never stopping at the gas pump to refuel. It's like trying to, to live your life and, and, and be energetic and, and be out there and do things with your life, but never stopping by the dinner table for, for supper. How many of us would do that? None of us, unless you just absolutely have to. And then you're sitting there looking at your watch wondering, when can I go eat? And yet we don't read the Bible. See, God speaks uniquely to us through His Word. He doesn't speak to us in the clouds. He doesn't speak to us through anything but the written word of God. Can God speak audibly to you today? I believe he could if he wanted to. I just don't believe today he does it that way. Why? Because we have a full canon of Scripture. God has spoken. He has revealed himself in the word of God. And so what he says to us is always in his word. He speaks uniquely to us through it. And if we close our ears to this daily conversation, we cannot hope to develop into any sort of mature believer. Those who attended this Jerusalem Bible study that was led by Ezra and Nehemiah and other Levites, they valued the Word of God, and it was exemplified through six characteristics. And very quickly, I'm going to try to share these with you. First characteristic we see is this. There was unity in the Word. It says, all the people gathered as one man. See, although these people were from different homes, they were from different backgrounds within the city and even beyond the city, they were driven by a common desire, and that desire was to hear the Word of God uniquely recorded in Scripture. They gathered together as one man. Today, we need to understand that the strategy that Satan uses in our lives, in our churches, and even in our nation is to divide and conquer. He's always working. His end game is always to divide the church. And so he strives to magnify our differences while minimizing our similarities. One of the most powerful and unifying forces within the life of God's people is an insatiable appetite for the faithful preaching and teaching of God's word. Today, if we want to have unity in our church, it will be grounded in the word of God. 
That's why I'm pleased as a pastor that there are so many of you reading along with us chronologically this year through the Bible. Many of you have told me this is the first time you will ever read through the Bible in its entirety or in its entirety within a year. And so there's great things happening. There's, there's a love affair taking place with the Word of God. Many of you are growing in your understanding of the Word of God. Several of you are meeting with us on Wednesday nights. We're talking through, asking questions, and, and trying to understand better what God has said to us through His Word. It's unifying to the people of God. So this discipline of reading God's Word each day, What it's doing in us and what it always does to us is it develops a greater appetite for it. And it binds us together with others who are growing in the same affection for God and his word. It's unifying. The second characteristic is this. Enthusiasm for the word. There was an enthusiasm. So as their their unity in the word was growing, it was fostering enthusiasm for the word of God. It goes on to say there in verse 1. And they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. This is probably the most remarkable feature of this whole passage of Scripture. And that's the fact that the demand for the Scripture at this meeting seems to have come from the people, not the leadership. They looked to Ezra and they said, we want you to bring the word of God to us. We want you to read the Bible to us. We want you to preach the Bible to us. Now, why would they have this heart? That's because when Ezra came back 13 years prior to Nehemiah, so in 445 B.C., Ezra comes back to rebuild the temple, reestablish worship, reestablish a love for God, and he begins to teach the Word of God to build a spiritual community. So for 13 years, he's been reading the Scripture publicly, preaching the Word of God publicly, and building the people of God in the Word so that when Nehemiah comes and he builds the wall of God and they begin together to form this spiritual community, it's the people of God who crave and call for the word of God to be read and shared they long for it as hungry people long for food all throughout salvation history one of the characteristics of genuine revival has been the sovereign initiative of God in giving men and women a longing for spiritual things see it's not artificially promoted by religious leaders but it's initiated by God himself through the simple reading of his word Where is this kind of enthusiasm for the Word of God today? Where is this kind of enthusiasm in the church for the Word? Where is it in your personal life today? Are you enthusiastic? I mean, do you get up in the morning, and I'm not crazy. I know that getting up in the morning is not easy for most people. I'm one of those crazy people that just pops out of bed. It's, I'm a zombie at the end of the day, but in the morning, I'm, just, I'm wired. I'm ready to go for the day. And so reading the Bible is pretty easy for me. I understand it may not be easy for all of you, but whenever you read the Bible, are you approaching it with an enthusiasm? When you come to church on a Sunday morning, are you coming with an enthusiasm to set under the teaching and the preaching of God's Word, wanting God to speak to you, wanting to be built up into the Word of God? One of the passages of scripture that we read this week if you're reading chronologically with us we read through psalm 119 there in that long psalm david over and over and over and over again declares the fact that he delights in the word of god today are you delighting in the word of god there's a third characteristic and all of these feed into one another so unity breeds enthusiasm which breeds attentiveness to the word They had an attentiveness to the word. It says there in verse 3 that in the presence of the men and the women and those who could understand and the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. In other words, they weren't sleeping in church. 
Now, some of you sleep. I understand. I, I get it. I, I, pre- I passed through church once where I had an older guy that sat like second row right in the middle. And this was a worship center very similar to this, much, much larger. And every day he had to get up in the middle of my preaching and go to the restroom because he took a water pill and it just kicked in. You know, at a certain time, you got to go. And then he would usually come back and fall asleep and sit right there every single Sunday. And I understood it was medication, all that stuff. And so I'm just having fun a little bit about falling asleep in church. But how many of us, when we come to church, we're not necessarily falling asleep, but we're thinking about everything else in the world. You're thinking about what you're going to do after church. You're thinking about what you're going to do tomorrow. You're thinking about how you wish you weren't here, but your wife drug you here. Let's be honest, men. You're not attentive. You don't listen. You're not enthusiastic. You're just going through religious motions, checking it off your list, or maybe you get up in the morning, you know you need to read the Bible, or whenever you do it during the day, but you're just reading, going through the motions. You're not really attentive to the Word. You ever done that? I have. I do it all the time. I catch myself doing it all the time. You become so familiar with something that you forget that you need to slow down and pay attention because God speaks through His Word. So literally here, the Word tells us that the ears of all the people were to the book of the law. Nothing was going to distract them from the immense blessing that they could receive from the Word. The people clearly expected God to speak to them directly through the word that he had given Moses centuries before. There was a vitality, there was an urgency about their listening. And this morning I wonder, in your life, is there a vitality, is there an urgency when you listen to God's word? Do you expect to hear from him when you read devotionally? Do you expect to hear from him when you sit under the preaching and teaching of God in the worship service? Do you expect to hear from him when you sit there and participate in your small group and dialogue and discussion as you're studying and, and discussing the word of God in your small group? There was an attentiveness to the word. Fourth characteristic we see was in responsiveness. See, as they were unified, as they were enthusiastic, it led to their attentiveness, and they also were responsive to that word. We see it in verses 5 and 6. Ezra opens the book inside of all the people. He's up there on the platform, and as he opened the book, what's the Bible say? It says the people of God stood to their feet. And then as he began to to declare a blessing upon the Lord and to thank him for the word of God and for this moment, the people lifted their hands before the Lord and they said, Amen, Amen. From the beginning of their meeting, this eager congregation recognized that they were not listening to the words of Ezra. They were not listening to the words of Nehemiah. They were listening to the very voice of God. You see, what Moses had reverently and reliably written centuries before, it was God's unique word for the people in Moses' day, and it was God's word for the unique word for them during the day of Ezra and Nehemiah. And today as we stand here reading this story from Nehemiah 8, it is God's unique word for us as well, for us to be attentive to and for us to respond to as well. The people of God stood. The people of God lifted their hands. The people of God blessed the Lord and said, Amen. Well, by doing so, what they're saying is this. Yes, Lord, may it be so. Let it be so in my life. Let the word of God and what it's saying to me be so in my life. So Ezra could lead them in worship, but his words would remain nothing more than a solitary expression if the people of God had not publicly identified with the word of God themselves, embraced it by responding to it. So the account here in these verses is largely, I want you to understand, it's largely descriptive, not prescriptive. So as the people stood, we don't necessarily, on a usual basis, stand when we read the Bible here. Some churches do that. It's it's six one way, half a dozen the other. It doesn't really matter. It's not prescriptive. In other words, you have to do it this way. Really what it speaks to is, is this. It's a holy reverence for the Word of God. 
We may not be standing to our feet reverently uh, before the Lord, but we need to be standing in our hearts before the Lord. Did you know this? You can stand to your feet in quote-unquote honor to the Word of God and not yet be standing in honor to the Word of God because you're not listening, you're not attentive. So it's not necessarily your posture. Physically, it's the posture of your spirit. It's the posture of your heart. They were responsive to the Word of God. Here's a statement. Biblical exposition necessitates a personal response. It necessitates a personal response. Every time you read the Word of God, God is speaking to you. And every time God is speaking to you, you need to respond. See, the reason we give a response time and quote-unquote invitation at the end of the service is not so I can stand up here in front of you and go through a religious ritual. It's not that at all. It's giving you a personal, tangible opportunity to say yes, Lord, to what he said to your heart. And you can do that publicly, you can do that privately. I think more, more than uh, we realize, we need to do it publicly. You need to come and, and just get on the face. Before. It's something about coming forward. It's something about uh, stepping and, and, and putting effort into what you're saying there in your mind. Because it's easy to kind of stand behind your pew and, and lock your hands there on the bottom uh, or the top of that pew and just kind of say, yes, Lord, whatever. But you're not really doing anything action with that and so it's out of sight out of mind when you walk out of this service but if you come forward oftentimes God helps solidify that in your heart especially as you go and you get with another brother or sister and you pray through whatever God is leading you to do or or whatever the decision is there needs to be a response and many many times that response needs to be public why does it need to be public a couple things one of them is just what I said it helps solidify your own decision to put feet behind what you have said yes to The second is this, it encourages the church. You see, sometimes, I was in the baptistry just a while ago, and I said, hey, if you've ever had anybody, or if anyone in your family has died in service of our country, would you stand? And and, and for a split second, everybody's kind of like this. I I don't want to be the first one. I saw some of your faces. And then we had a couple stand in the back, and after a while, you know, we had, what, five, ten people stood. But it took a moment to do that. Now, we weren't trying to coerce or, or, or get people into this flow of doing something, but when you respond to the Word of God, it helps encourage others to be responsive as well. Because we all, by nature, are a little apprehensive. And so it helps encourage others to follow through in what the Lord is leading you to do. And so if God puts a thing in your heart and he's leading you to do something, be responsive. Say yes. Write your name at the blank sheet. Say this, Lord, is is my life. It's over to you. I will do whatever you call me to do and then go do that. This leads to a a fifth characteristic. Submission to the word. We see there in verse 6 again. They were lifting their hands. They bowed their heads and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. The worshipers not only stood to their feet, but we see here they fell to their knees. See, recognizing that by his word the living God was present among them, they had no greater desire than to fall before him humbly, gratefully, and adoringly. Seeking the face of God meant hiding their own face. It was this kneeling posture of a suppliant in desperate need of help, an indebted beggar gratefully acknowledging an undeserved gift. It was a servant who waits obediently in the presence of a beloved master. They're just kneeling in worship and honor and adoration in response to the greatness of the word of God that's spoken so deeply into their hearts. They submitted to the Lord. They didn't bow in worship to the scripture in and of itself. They bowed in worship and submission to the God the scriptures revealed. See, we don't worship the Bible. I, one time when I was a youth pastor, you know when, you do, when you're a youth pastor, especially a young guy, you're kind of stupid. 
You ever had a, no, I'm not going to ask that question. That's a dangerous question to answer. Uh, I, I was foolish many, I'm still foolish many times, but in my younger years, I remember, I was trying to make a point, and I have no idea what the point was, but I remember trying to make this point, and so I dropped my Bible on the ground. I'm speaking to, to students, and there's adults in there too, and, and I stomped on my Bible. And it's like the wind had come, some of you got your gasping face right now. You're like, how in the world could you ever do that? And uh, so I was making a great point, and I don't know what the point was, but it was great. And, uh, and so it just, like, it went over like a lead balloon, especially with the adults. And so I, I bombed there. I learned that you probably shouldn't do that in church. I uh, also learned that uh, sometimes we may worship the quote-unquote scripture more than we worship the God of the scripture. And so that's not what they're doing here. They're not worshiping the word that is being read. They're worshiping the God who has spoken those words to, uh, to them and to us. So they weren't bowing in worship to the written word. They are bowing to the God who has voiced those words. Submitting. Again, biblical exposition necessitates a personal response. That is one of submission to it. Submitting yourselves to the word of God. Responding in adoration and in submission. This led to a last characteristic, and that is openness to the word. In verse 8, Nehemiah tells us they read from the book, from the law of God, clearly. And they gave the sense so that the people of God understood the reading. What's going on here? What's going on here is this. Nehemiah, Ezra, and the congregation understood that the word of God that was given to Moses was not only applicable to the people back then, it was also applicable and contemporary and relevant for them at this day. And so it speaks to every generation. It speaks to every single person. And for this reason, the Levites, Nehemiah tells us, they took the people of God, they broke them up into smaller groups, and they began to declare the Word of God and to teach the Word of God and to bring application to their lives. We find here within the people an openness to the Word of God. They, went, they didn't have this old crusty mindset that says, bless me if you can. They didn't have this mindset that says, I've already read it, I've already know it, you can't teach me anymore. But that sometimes is what I find in the church. It's sometimes even what I find amongst pastors. I've been to seminary, I've read it, I've taught it. And so oftentimes when pastors are listening to other pastors preach, what they're doing is they're critiquing the pastor more than they're listening to the word he's preaching. I've been guilty of that we got to be attentive. we got to be responsive. we got to be submissive. We have to be open to the Word of God. Uh, I've had people uh, sit in the service, and I know of other pastors who've told me stories. We, we swap stories sometimes. And, and, uh, and, and so I've had people that, that listen more to how I mispronounce things, and that happens, than the truth I'm sharing. I hope that's not any of our, any of our church. I don't know of anyone that sits and does that. If that's you, I hope you feel under the conviction of the Holy Spirit this morning. You're on your face repenting in just a moment. Uh, I'm halfway kidding about that. But seriously, why would we critique the preacher more than the, allow the Word of God to critique our own hearts? How open are we to the Word? When you open your Bible devotionally, how open are you to allow God to speak to every area of your life? How open are we? How teachable today are we? I mean, are you reading and studying the word yourself with an openness that God can speak and reveal himself, that he can reveal your sin, that he can reveal areas that need further sanctifying work through the Holy Spirit? Where would we be today if God had not spoken? Where would we be today if God had kept silent? Here's an answer. We wouldn't be here to begin with. Because the Bible says, the very beginning, let there be. 
See, if God hadn't spoken, we wouldn't exist. Creation itself would not exist. If God had not spoken, we would have no other reason to gather in this building. We would have no reason to sing songs of joy. We couldn't sing a song like, Jesus' blood speaks for me, if Jesus had not spoken. Because if you remember, about 2,000 years ago, Jesus is spread across the cross. A crown of thorns is on his brow. This punched into his brow, blood soaking his body, his back ripped apart from the cat of nine tails. He is, has a spear in his side, and Jesus there is on the cross, and what does he declare? He says, to tell us die. It is finished. And brother or sister, if Jesus hadn't declared on the cross that it's finished, you and I would still be in our sin today. And so how important is it that God speaks it makes every bit of importance. God has spoken, and he has spoken most clearly through, the God, through God the Son, Jesus Christ. And he alone has the words of eternal life, John 6, 68 says. His presence and his voice are what we seek. They are what bring spiritual renewal to our lives. Therefore, we today would be wise to value God's word that reveals him to us. Why are we not reading our Bibles? Why are we not studying our Bibles? Why are we not listening to the word of God be taught? Why do we go through religious motions? It's because something's not right in our own heart. We don't value the word of God. Well, pastor, I don't have time to read the Bible. Pastor, I don't have time to go to church on a regular basis. Pastor, I don't have time to do whatever. Pastor, I don't have time to, or, or I don't have money to go and, and maybe even go to a, a spiritual conference or, 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 or do something like that, a Bible conference or something, or a trip that we're planning. I don't have money or time to do that. You know what you have, what I've learned? You have money and time to do what's important to you. I've got all the money and all the time in the world to do what I value. Do you value what's important? They valued the word of God. And because of that, God is doing something very unique in their lives as they stand before the word of God with the walls built, miracles taking place in their lives. Now they're standing and declaring their faithfulness to the word of God, literally to the person of God. May we value God's word. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, this morning, I thank you for this wonderful testimony of these people who loved you. God, we know, we, we, we've read already that there were many in the congregation, many among the people of God who didn't have this heart. But Lord, what we're reading here is it seems that the majority of the people of God there in Jerusalem and the surrounding cities loved you and loved your word. They wanted to hear from you. This morning, I pray that that is the heartbeat of us sitting in this room today. Uh, that as we've proclaimed your word, that we are sitting here listening and seeking to not only hear, but to respond to what we've heard. So I pray, Lord Jesus, that we would do just that. As we move into a time of response, may we respond in faith. Lord, that means that the person who's religious but never come into relationship with Christ today needs to give their life to Jesus. Forget, forsake their sin, repent of that sin, turn to Christ and receive forgiveness. Lord, that means that the person who's a follower of Jesus but just walking at a guilty distance needs to, to seek your face this morning. Needs to confess sin that's, that's hampered and hindered their walk with you. And to walk in the newness of life that is theirs already. So God, their response needs to be confession and faith. God, others have been 
visiting our church for a number of weeks, maybe even months, and you're saying, Lord, it's, it's time, guys, to join. It's time to, to, get in, to get in gear and begin to serve and plug in here officially. And so they need to respond by saying, I want my family to be under the teaching and the spiritual authority of this local church. God, there's so many things that you may be speaking. I pray that our hearts are attentive, responsive, submissive, and open to whatever that may be. As we sing, Lord Jesus, help us to respond in faith. We pray this in your name. Amen. Let's stand across the room.